Hello, welcome to the Tavern Between Dimensions, a monthly podcast on all things D&D. My name is Carl Dudish, and I will be your bartender for your time here today. Joining me for service is the Dungeon Master for the Explorers of Elsewhere, Dan Tyree. Hello, hello, hello. And international man of mystery, uh, Anton Bain. Hello. Hi, guys. So, first episode yes. of a new podcast. Uh, first and foremost, I think we really need to tell you guys what we're actually doing here today, because thank you firstly for listening, but who the hell are we? Well, as I said, we are a uh, podcast about all things D&D. We're going to be breaking this in down to uh, segments for you to basically talk about the different aspects of D&D. For instance, we have a really cool segment called BYOB, uh, where basically we're going to discuss different builds that we challenge each other to make. We have a section called the DM's Table, where Dan, a uh, well-established DM, is going to basically talk about the different things that, you know, different ways of being a DM, or the different sort of challenges you come across. We have the Player's Round, which is basically something for more sort of me and Anton, who usually sits on the other side of the table, and the experiences we have as players, or the challenges we face. And lastly, we have Happy Hour, where we discuss any other business. But first, I think we should get to know the the three people here today. So let's start with Dan. Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, Dan? So yeah, as Carl mentioned, I am the current DM for the uh, the Cormier Echoes of War campaign over on the Explorers of Elsewhere channel. Uh, I started playing role-playing games way back when, about, well, about 12 years ago when I was at university. Um, and in my first long-term campaign, uh, I had uh, this troublesome player uh, called Carl. Uh, who joined in and uh yeah just kind of just kind of gone from there yeah over time i've realized that uh, role-playing games D&D in particular just kind of tick all of the the you know the performer actor kind of boxes that i like ticking in my life um and it's just yeah just something that's become really really important to me on many many different levels and uh anton a little bit about yourself yeah so i first well learned about D&D. Uh, actually via Critical Role. I saw an imager in your post saying there's this new D&D show and uh, I'm like, oh, all right, what is it? What is D&D? I don't know. And this was like early episodes, like around episode eight, nine. I started watching it and I just fell in love with the game, the concept behind it. And I was like, wait, I need I need to get some of that. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, I joined a meetup game and Dan was at that meetup and that's that's how we know each other. And he eventually became the DM for that campaign. And so I've been playing for five years now. Just a range of, of characters, and uh, I've just been loving every single moment of it. So, and it's good to be here. Talk about D and D. For myself, uh, I sort of first heard about D and D through playing sort of uh, online games. Uh, we actually sort of uh, uh, played uh, City of Heroes for a long time, and I met a group of people who we actually met up in in real life. Uh, and one of them was a D&D player, so he sort of introduced me to the concept of D&D a couple of years before I actually even started playing properly. So I had like one tester game, and then years later I met a very troublesome person in, a, in one of my jobs called Dan, uh, who basically tried to start up a D&D group and obviously had this pre-existing idea of what it was. So I ended up joining uh, his campaign, pretty much played every week for three years non-stop after that. Uh, apart from Christmas holidays, it was the only time we really, really had off. And about 10 years later, here I am still playing his games uh, and running a few of my own as well. 
but yeah, I've, I've, I enjoy D and enjoy making larger than life characters and sometimes troublesome characters. It seems like <laughs> more recent examples, but I love D and and I, I, I think, I think all of us, we've been playing long enough that we have some knowledge of the, how the game works, which is why we thought this would be a good thing to do. Yeah, and we just like talking about D D, so this is just another yeah. excuse to do so. Exactly. So mainly for that reason, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were having these conversations by ourselves and we thought, well, do you know what? We'll we'll torture other people with them as well. So yes. that's why we decided to start this this little project. But yeah, I think let's see we can make a podcast. <laughs> Fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. So our first segment today is BYOB. Uh, Anton, do you want to take it away? Yeah. So BYOB is bring your own build. I like strange and interesting characters. I like building them. I like thinking about them. But I thought, why don't we each bring a character to the table that we think would be interesting to play or, or has some peculiarities about it? And, and let's just discuss about it. So today we'll be looking at dexterity-based fighters. So you know, get rid of that heavy armor, put down them all. It's all about dexterity. So whether you're ranged or you're up there with a rapier and a dagger, uh, I uh, set ourselves a chance to to discuss and see what we could find. None of that two-handed weapon shit, right? No, no, get get rid of that. It's all about that dex and see what we can make, make up. Dan, I think you have a character for us. I... What have you made? I do indeed. So, yeah, it was an, it was an interesting build, actually. I realized perhaps in my my simple monkey brain that when i think of fighters uh, a lot of the time when they're dex based you just kind of naturally gravitate towards ranged right like whether it's you know probably yeah. a bow yeah probably probably even an elf and just kind of you know exploiting all of the like archery fighting styles and so on and so forth there was a part of me that thought no because there are so many dexterity based kind of melee builds in the game you know rogues and rangers and whatnot like why can't the fighter be dex and melee but also still kind of, in inverted commas, fighter. The character that I brought is a... Give, give um, us the name. Give us the name, Dan. So today I'm presenting Lonk. <laughs> right. Just Lonk now, from, the, from where? Lonk, from the past, maybe? Lonk, as you will all know from that fabled legend of Zelda, Lonk is yes. a fighter through and through. Okay, so to start things off, uh, Lonk is a variant human. Um, there might be the slightest of pointy ears. Yeah, it might just be the light. I think it's fair to say that Lonk is a folk hero. Uh, aha. Yes. Everyone everyone knows the story yeah. of Lonk. Um, and basically, yeah, I, we, in, in terms of stats, so obviously dexterity and dexterity is going to be high, right? So using the variant human with the floating stats, I put uh, plus one in dexterity. Uh, Lonk is also quite sturdy and tough because there are many trials that uh, Lonk engages in. Uh, so constitution is also a 16. Strength and intelligence are at 10. Uh, Lonk notices quite a lot of stuff, uh, so is going to be at uh, uh, Wisdom 13. However, is kind of quiet, very rarely says anything, might make the occasional kind of grunt or shout in a fight. So we're going to dump Charisma down to 8. You've pretty much maxed out Dexterity and Con. And yes, a bit of wisdom in there. Absolutely. Okay. Hearty plus three bonuses in dexterity. The wisdom is because there's a voice in the back of his head constantly telling him to, to listen and, and, you know, to look over here. Well, it's funny you should say that. I mean, in terms in terms of skills, 
you know, the fighter doesn't give us all that many uh, proficiencies. We get an extra one from being a variant human. Uh, we've gone for animal handling uh, <laughs> because Lonk is very good at horse riding. Yep. Athletics because Lonk is very good at climbing mountains and doing rolls and all sorts and whatnot. And perception because uh, Lonk just happens to know where to look at, you know, any given point, you know? And your, your feet you took? As a variant human, um, so we're going to open up with the medium armor mastery, uh, medium armor master feet, um, which is actually a feat that doesn't get a lot of play time because in a, in a vertical it's kind of boring, uh, but it allows you to get up to plus three dexterity bonus from wearing medium armor instead of plus two, and you ignore disadvantage on stealth saves, uh, okay. on stealth checks. So, so you're, cool. you're pretty much at the same level as you would be with heavy armor, but you don't have the, the stealth advantage. Precisely. So you can be a, a sneaky fighter. A sneaky fighter. Well, uh, with high Lonk, Lonk isn't necessarily kind of sneaky. Um, Lonk's striding into battle pretty much uh, with uh, kind of the default fighter equipment. A few tweaks here and there. Um, but he's striding into battle with a longsword and shield. Both found out in the wilderness. The, the sword has this beautiful blue hilt. Mm -hmm. uh, found it in a rock in a forest. Very bizarre. And also comes <laughs> equipped with a trusty longbow. So one th good thing about uh, dexterity fighters is that if you're fighting with a finesse weapon like a short sword i mean you could fight with a rapier but yeah it doesn't seem very long does it no. you now have that ability where you can very easily fight at either up close or at range with a combination of uh scale mail uh which is still medium armor a shield medium armor mastery and taking the defense fighting style at level one lonk actually ends up at a hearty ac20 Ooh. at level five which is where this, this build is so, kind of built to meaty. so again that's pretty much uh you're in full plate with shields you'd be at mm -hmm. that, that level so. yeah and there is not a single plus bonus of strength insight so yeah going uh so lonk is a straight fifth level fighter so you know level one we pick up second wind we pick up the fighting style uh defense option uh level two you get your action surge uh at level three we pick up battle master as a subclass Ooh. it's a golden novelty it's tried and tested yeah. we know it works yeah and we've picked three maneuvers and they're quite interesting actually three maneuvers yeah based off the d8 superiority dice that you start with with a hearty Kia! we have lunging attack uh which you know lonk is very well known for yeah lonk as we were saying earlier, always just seems to know where to strike on an enemy, just notices things, you know, has this kind of idea that maybe the big glowing eye on the baddie is probably like a weak spot or something. Um, so we're going to go with tactical assessment, which is a newer maneuver from Tasha's. Uh, and then we're also going to go for distracting strike for those times where you have to hit someone and then quickly roll out the way. And lunging attack then, does that increase your reach? Yes, Correct. yeah, so it basically gives Lonk a 10-foot reach rather than a 5-foot reach. And tactical assessment gives you advantage on checks versus an enemy, is that right? No, so tactical advantage is actually a relatively out-of-combat feat, which gives you bonuses to things like investigation, perception, and, and so on. Which is okay. something that you don't tend to see on fighters. Um, okay. Arguably, the most important thing about Lonk uh, at level 3 is that Battlemaster also gives you proficiency in an artisan's tool, uh, and and recently, we've known that Lonk has really kind of dived into cooking. 
mm-hmm. especially out al fresco out in the wild uh, yeah. so cooks utensils you know it seals that off uh, at level four we get an additional feat instead of uh, an ability score increase we're gonna go with the dungeon delver feat the, here's the thing about lonk right with a sword and bow she's quite proficient when you dive into these dungeons and you can just festoon yourself with magical items and magical weapons uh you know bracelets that increase your strength uh like grappling hooks that fling you across the battlefield grappling hook is the one you really got to keep an eye out for right yeah i mean there's get two it's even better exactly yeah you've got to live up to the legend of zelda in every way you can and then finally <laughs> at level five uh lonk unlocks her second attack per turn to really kind of start ramping up the damage um so it is a lot of this build i guess does involve your dm being quite generous uh with your magic items all of which have to be contained in chests uh with a music box inside um and you have to present it both hands to the rest of the party whenever you find it I am actually a little surprised at your your proficiency choice because I thought at least you'd have chosen some sort of musical instrument like an ocarina would be a very good choice. I mean, the way I play it, it's definitely not proficient, so... Yeah, it yeah, no, okay. I, I, yeah, I actually see that and would wholeheartedly agree with that one. <laughs> so yeah, that is Lonk. Anton, what did... Uh... Yeah, what did you bring to the table? All right, so I also decided not to go for ranged fighter i thought that's too easy that's too simple uh i've instead gone for a bit of a combo i uh i'm known for multi-class mm-hmm. and uh yeah I'll, i do like it and i've gone for fighter rogue multi-class my character's name is quendar uh they are a drow smuggler probably part of Bregendirth. the uh Jarl Axel's gang crew of mercenary uh if you're playing a water deep campaign this would be a good character to yeah. To maybe uh, look into. And so there are Fighter 6, uh, Rogue 2 multi-class. Uh, in terms of stats, I've got 12 in strength, 20 in dex uh, at level 8, 14 con, 8 intelligence, 10 wisdom, and 14 charisma. Maxed out dex, con is where you put it at, around about 14. And then add a bit of charisma for um, yeah, just to have a bit more roleplay uh, involvement. What else have we got? A drow, obviously have dog vision, they're immune to sleep, got some nice little spells such as uh, fairy fire and darkness to play around with. The fighter I've went with Battlemaster, as you did, Dan, because okay. here's, here's the thing about Battlemaster. I feel like all fighter subclasses should be erased and then <laughs> start out as a Battlemaster. Whatever you know, uh, subclass Ooh. you choose gets added onto that. That's interesting. That's, if I had to change fighters, that's what I would do. But yeah, for me, Battlemaster is, is one of the best. best yeah, no, I have to say, most, most of my fighters have Battlemaster in some degree or even a Battlemaster fee. You just get so much and it's just yeah. really interesting. It, it makes the fighter in like kind of enjoyable to play. So you've got this little toolbox you can play with mm. and it's that's really enjoyable. In terms of maneuvers, I chose three and I chose these very, very specifically. I chose Repost. Yeah, very good one. So, I love that. Yeah. If an attacker misses you with an attack, you can use your reaction to hit back at them and add superiority uh, damage dice. This has a bit of interaction with rogues because sneak attack can be applied on your turn. Oh. Right? Once per turn, but it can also be applied on your reaction, right? Yeah. So if you make a reaction strike, you can uh, add your sneak attack damage to that. Mm-hmm. Just a little, yeah, a little 
precision rules there that you might not be aware of. Quick toss is uh, also from Tasha's. It's a new maneuver. Basically allows you to draw a dagger or an axe and throw it as a bonus action. So you do have multi-attack because of the five levels of fighter. So you can make two attacks. If you happen to miss both of those, I would do a quick toss and try and get my sneak attack damage out. Get a lot of value for with it. Just love that maneuver. I think it's great. It's very flavorful. Just being able to fight with the dagger and then if you see somebody else, just throw a dagger at them. It's just great. And then uh, trip attack. You can trip someone and if they fall, then you get advantage. Again, another interaction with Rogue. All kind of synergizes together to make a nice little fun combo. Didn't think about the uh, implications of, of riposte and sneak attack. That's Yeah. Yeah, didn't so, actually cross my mind. Very good yeah. catch, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if I were to progress this build a bit further, I would probably take it further into Rogue. I mean, you've got multi-attack with fighter, you're at six, and I'd probably go at th at least three levels of rogue, and you could potentially go up to five and, and even further. So you can, mm. I'd probably even make it an even split between fighter and rogue, maybe get to 11 fighter just to get three attacks, and yeah. then the rest in rogue really is, is probably what you'd be looking at. Rogue is, is probably one of my favorite classes to multi-class into. I know we're mm -hmm. working fighters, but you just get that dash as bonus action, you can disengage, and, uh, and then when you get into subclasses, you even get more. Yeah. This character actually allowed me to take a feat, uh, just the way the stats laid out. So I took a feat at fourth level. I took the piercer feat. So once per turn, I can reroll piercing damage. So that works with my dagger and works with the rapier. Mm -hmm. And it gives me plus one dex. So that rounds up my dexterity at 18 when I was at level four. And if you crit, you get an extra damage dice. So that's an extra D8 on a, on a rapier. That's pretty much it. If I was playing a Waterdeep campaign, I'd be quite interested in playing this character. Play them probably quite neutral, used to being kind of chaotic evil and maybe trying to change their ways as they've left the, <laughs> the Bregan death and adapted to their new companions. So there's actually also a lot of uh, role play potential for this character because of the rogue proficiencies and the way you get expertise. I've actually put all the expertise in the charisma sort of stats. So you get really high deception. Intimidation is at plus eight, which is insane <laughs> for, a, for a fighter. And I think I also have uh, persuasion. Yeah. If it's not like a Waterdeep campaign, any sort of like urban campaign work just as well. And you could obviously just rename the background, I suppose, right? Yeah, it actually doesn't have to be a draw. I chose draw because I like that the whole smuggler, Bregan Dearth. You could just put any uh, any class there and it'd probably still work. Uh, I mean, if... what I find very interesting is that, you know, because you've got Rogue and I suspect it's the expertise, but your the stealth score is plus 11, um, yeah. which you don't expect to see on something with like kind of that much health <laughs> um yeah because yeah, yeah. a, a level 8 rogue arguably shouldn't have around about 65 hit points mm -hmm. but yeah so having having that bag of meat appear behind you unexpectedly <laughs> it's it's interesting how versatile the fighters the fighter class is yeah, I mean, so far, most of the fighters that I've been making in other campaigns have all been dex fighters as well. You, it really does change the dynamic, and it, it, it goes to show even just seeing between these two different builds that sometimes we look at these these attributes and we don't quite see how we can use them in different ways. Like, again, with dex and a fighter, because straight away you think dex fighter, and as Dan said earlier, think bow and arrow. No, you, you can really make something quite powerful with it, and I really, I've been really enjoying yeah. that in some of my, some of my builds. I think, Dan, your build uh, had a really, really high AC. So it just shows mm. that you, you, know, you don't have to go yeah. strength to have a high AC. 
And what I was trying to do with mine was show that you can actually get that damage potential without going strength, right? Because if you're strength-based, you would be doing two times 2d6 or 4d6 plus strength per round. Uh, whereas here, you're kind of making up that damage with that sneak attack. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I like rogue, is whenever you try multi-class, you can always put a bit of rogue because of those sneak attack dice that, that you can make up that extra damage. And unlike Rogue, the fighter gives you the opportunity, like more opportunities to apply sneak attack, whereas Rogues kind of have a one shot per turn. Yeah, if you're if you're wielding a rapier as a Rogue, you have one shot to hit. Roughly, what level would you slip into Rogue? You can take it at first level, or or at second level. It's really not too bad. What you really don't want to delay is your multi attack. Mm. So you can delay it by one level because you have that D six to catch up. So instead of uh, 2d8, you'd be d8 plus d6. So it's not too bad and you kind of miss out on the bonus damage. But I'd, I would do that just for the flavor. I think that's that's probably why I'd do it. But you can go firefighter and then into rogue. Yeah, yeah there we have it. <laughs> Those are, are our builds. So I think there's some potential there. In yeah. multi-class, we'll get some feats and uh, get a nice little, a different type of fighter going out and about, which is what I really uh, look for. And if you're interested in playing either of these two builds, we will make them available in due course as a PDF for you to download and uh, maybe some notes even on when to take stuff. Keep an eye out for that and hopefully Lunk or even a very sneaky rogue fighter will be uh, joining a campaign near you soon. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for BYOB. segment we're actually handing it over to dan is this is the dm's table where we discuss all things that happen behind the screen be it learning new skills or tricks or even just things that you may not have thought of so dan take it away please pull up a seat uh, join the sophisticated and civilized <laughs> table it was relevant on the maiden voyage of the tavern this being our first time doing a podcast let's talk about being a first time dm right thankfully like the rpg world is exploding at the moment uh with everything that's happening in the world uh and it just be kind of becoming normalized uh especially through the efforts of incredible content creators like across the internet and and you know around the world so more and more people are getting clued into rpgs but to have an rpg group generally speaking you have to have some sort of games master to run it and a lot of people will find that quite imposing um for good reason it's, it's a it can be quite a big undertaking so really just just for anyone out there who's thinking about giving it a try i've just I, you know i've got three pointers that i kind of want to run through with you just to you know kind of give you the confidence give you the that little nudge to kind of jump into the world of games mastering um and then kind of start to reap the benefits and the fun and excitement that comes from it uh Dean Dan, how long have yes. you been dming for uh well so i've been playing for 12 years i've been dming for probably about 11 years <laughs> there's been very few points in my life since i started playing where i've not been dm or gm of something um and that's been across multiple multiple systems as well previously anton and i were playing in a shadow run game that uh, was based in london which was which was very very fun that was very cool that was a very cool campaign but, but yes another another point Dean. were you a dm by choice or was it put upon you to to be the dm nobody else wanted to do it and you were brave enough to take upon the mantle <laughs> so when i very first started playing uh like i was a player um 
and I, when I became fascinated with with just kind of the concept of RPGs, I, I found myself being drawn towards kind of the showmanship of being well, it was a dungeon master for fourth edition. Fourth edition D and D had just come out, and there were just so many stories and ideas I wanted to show. And like, I'm a performer by mm-hmm. personality, <laughs> uh, so that just you know the stars aligned in that sense. And just the kind of statement of the century there, Dan. <laughs> haven't looked back. So yes. If you find that you're in a similar position to me, or maybe even not, like if you're feeling a bit apprehensive about it, my first piece of advice is, as first-time DM, start small. Like, now we're in a world where, for example, like Critical Role is as huge as it is, and with these massive sprawling storylines and banks of characters and mounds of lore and world-building. As a first-time DM, you don't need any of that. That's very true. Yeah. So... I remember the first the first game I played. All we did is we were in a tavern, created our characters, and then we went on the road and got ambushed by some goblins, killed the goblins, and that was it. Yeah, <laughs> it was a great session. We we all had a great time. It's why most of the Baldur's Gate games usually start with quite simple. Oh, my uh, basement is filled with rats. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> so the the fourth egg campaign that I started way back when, which was the first first game I played with Carl properly, uh, that started. <laughs> in a tavern in a town called Orsmead and I drew a very very basic primary color map of the town and I came up with I think three plot hooks of things that were happening in and around the town that an adventurer group could deal with by the end of that campaign they were saving the universe from a, a primordial that had attained godhood and was locked away in another dimension and was going to eat reality like you, you start small um because that gives you the time to grow it gets you gives you an opportunity to adapt it to your players and, and so on and so forth and and you don't have to have all the answers like exactly. it's perfectly fine to not know the macroeconomics of the kingdom to not know who the king is Precisely. all you need to know is there's a tavern there's a village and, <laughs> and the players aren't going to ask you yeah who's the yeah. king or who's the queen or or what is the the political structure of the country like, precisely i mean at the start of the campaign the most important thing for you as a dm to think about i would argue is who are the characters that your character players have brought to the table because like that is their it's all of your stories but like they're those players those characters are the main focus you know so start with them grow from there yeah touch we touched on it a little bit but your first time dm you do not need to have an encyclopedic knowledge of the rules you really don't especially if you're all new to it it's fine to get rules wrong i mean we call it it's a it's the player's handbook it's not the player's rule book they are all guidelines you you don't have to be a rules lawyer to when when you first start off over time you'll get used to it and uh, you know your enjoyment will come from there and as you learn more things you'll get more ideas and so on and so forth but again start small and i think on, on that point it's perfectly fine for a dm to say i don't know that but let me just look in, look into the book and I'll get the answer for you. And then just take an, take a two-minute break to read up the rule or find out who the king of the kingdom is or the queen of the kingdom. And it's, it's fine for the DM to take a break to get the answer they need or just make it up on the spot. It's, yeah. Both are fine. The, the players will do that as well. It's a learning experience for both of you, like mm. for, the, for the players and for the DM. This kind of builds into into my second point. A very, very important thing for new DMs is learning the power of the phrase, yes, and. Ah, uh, the amount of times I heard that. Yes, that's, and. That's, an, that's an improv thing, though. 
Absolutely. I mean, but I mean, D and D is you know fundamentally in, in improvise. Well, RPGs yeah. in general are fundamentally improvisational a lot of the mm -hmm. time. But yeah, the the term yes and like it, it's always a back and forth between you and your players, you and your players, uh, or your players and your players and your players and your players. But RPGs inherently are collaborative storytelling exercises. Everyone around the table has a hand in developing the story and the best way to facilitate that is through the phrase yes and so your player says they want to do a thing what you want to say as often as possible is yes and and then you run with it and then you build on it and then you pass it back and then they you know your players they take what you've just given them and they yes and and then you know it, it builds and builds and builds so what you're saying is you don't have to be have everything prepared because your players will do some of the work for you absolutely you know you don't absolutely. have to have the whole village laid out because they're probably just only interested in going to one place. So just write a name of one place and, a, and, and the person yeah. that might be there. If you're a first-time DM, whilst I would recommend you starting with, like, a published adventure mm. from any you know any any published adventure you can get your hands on especially if you're, if you're doing a homebrew your players will be instrumental in building the world because they'll inform you what they want to you know to get out of it speaking of which in terms of the players the players and by proxy their characters as a dm you are their ally not their enemy there shouldn't ever really be an antagonistic relationship between the dm and the player base because as a games master you should be a neutral arbitrator let's sure you run all the bad things that are trying to kill the players but you're also the facilitator of the story and the plot and the pacing and so on and so forth without challenges there's no story right precisely if everything's easy then yeah. nothing happens so that's that's why i guess the dm has to have both of those roles yeah yeah as a dm like if you can be in a position where you're celebrating your players achievements rather than cursing them for defeating your your well laid out plans then you're in a good spot so then my last point to remember is that it's a game mm. so what do, what do you mean then okay. <laughs> it's real life it's a, isn't it oh my god so many questions it is a game dming is quite intense well, yeah, games mastering in general can be quite intense, but it's also so, so, so rewarding. What you have to remember when you're doing it is you've got to be having fun. You've got to be having fun. Your players need to be having fun because that's why we, we're getting together and doing it. It's to have a good time. And there's no shame in acknowledging that actually something isn't fun or something isn't working. As a group of individuals that have all come together to do a, th a thing together, you should be able to f figure out what needs to change to make it fun again, if if that's kind of slipped. And sometimes when it comes to establishing that that feel, it's absolutely fine and kind of you know, very recommended to set boundaries. Having this mutual understanding between you and all of your players, what is allowed, what isn't allowed, whether that's in terms of kind of in-world law and expectations to player expectations and what, you know, are there any topics, for example, that we are and aren't going to deal with? Whilst it may seem that there will be some topics that you just don't deal with and you, you kind of need to reach out to your players and find out if there's any others that you haven't thought about that are important to them that are, you know, avoided. Yeah. I think session zero Precisely. with your players is very important in, in setting up the game to succeed, right? Yeah. 
you get a group of players that want to work together, that are happy being together, that are happy playing together. And, and again, make sure everyone's on the same page as to what kind of adventure you're playing. Yeah. You know, you don't get some people wanting to do gothic horror and the other people want to do light-hearted jokey or some others want to do murder hobo adventure. The group has to work together. So there is a certain amount of give and take that each player must accept in that. 100%, yeah. And that's important in making sure everybody has fun. Yeah, especially if you're a first-time games master. Like, honesty between you and your players is so important so so important and and we're not just talking about like are my npcs telling the player characters the truth no i mean like if you as the games master like if you're struggling with something or you know if there's something that's just not sitting right you should always be able to be honest with your players because again like going back to what i was saying earlier the whole point of this is to have fun and if someone isn't having fun, it's arguably the responsibility of everyone around the table to band together and be honest about it and, you know, come to a resolution. Those would be my three kind of points. We'll notice that I didn't really kind of touch very much on any sort of mechanics because arguably game mechanics are a tool for your storytelling. They aren't the building blocks of your storytelling. So yeah, I would say start small. Start with a town, with a tavern, or whatever. Start with a caravan that your players are guarding on the way to a place. Just start there and then grow outwards. Don't sweat it about the rules. They'll come in time. Mm -hmm. Yes, and make sure that you know everyone around the table is focused on constructive roleplay rather than destructive roleplay. And make sure that you're not fostering like a bad relationship with your players. And yeah, be okay with improv you can make all the plans in the world and they will go right out the window within the first five <laughs> ten minutes like and that's fine yeah. like you know the thing about improv yeah you know, i suppose you can and you can't prep improv but just roll with it like again have fun it's a game so i mean yeah there's all that i, I would say just a, a, a weird endum <laughs> there is a phenomenon known as the mercer effect <laughs> and so this is this is when new dungeon masters tried to compare themselves absolutely. to uh -huh. matthew mercer of critical role and from the tweet of the man himself mr mercer is horrified at the idea of the mercer effect yeah which is either new games masters or new players expecting what you might see yeah. on something like critical role at the table on, on both sides mm -hmm. precisely you should just <laughs> do what you can to not fall under the sway of the mercer effect because at the end of the day it's your table your group of friends your stories not matt mercer's or anyone else's for that matter yeah and there's many different ways of playing D, &D and yeah. uh, approaching certain things so mercer has his particular style and i've seen many many other dms that that have a very different style and they're not necessarily better or, or, or comparable it's just a different way of playing D, &D. so find the best way that you want to play and and play that whether it be hyper realistic medieval warfare or it's very light light on rules you know sort of improv type scenarios precisely you know what's going to happen though in about sort of 10 years there'll be a group of three new D, &D players who are going to be sitting around starting up their own podcast they're going to be talking about the tyree effect it's oh, like yeah sure. we don't want it we don't want to compare ourselves to the tyree <laughs> I mean, I think you should, though. I mean, everyone should aspire <laughs> to adopt the Tyree effect. Like, uh, the three of us, we've all mm -hmm. DM'd. As Carl, I mean, was there anything that you thought of that oh. would go as a, a, a tack on? 
Well, I was also saying when you were talking about, you know, start small and mm-hmm. when you create like three plot hooks, one anecdote I remember is I was running a, a game and I had several plot hooks because I expect him to only latch onto one, but somehow the players latched onto all of them mm-hmm. and linked them. And yep. me as Perfect. the DM was, was, yeah, no, in the end, they wrote the entire adventure because they took these very <laughs> basic plot points I'd set up and turned them all into something more than that, what they were. It set a precedent for me that I don't over plan anymore. I usually figure out how I want to start the session because it will never end the way I want it to. It will always be dictated by the players in the end because they may go on a strange tangent. As long as I know roughly where they're heading, the rest I can I can create. So start small and don't over plan. Yeah. No plan ever survives contact with the players and that can be a good thing. It yeah. can also be a great thing when, when you're watching a plot you didn't expect to unfold start unfurling and shape your entire campaign as a result of it. Uh, have a rough idea and be ready to throw it away at any moment's notice yeah just (laughs) yes within seconds i would also suggest there are a huge number of sources of information that you can reach Mm. that you can go to matt colville with sly flourish and the lazy dm the angry dm there's there's just (laughs) countless countless opportunities web dm also very good yes like, like that show. So one one little comment I had on on just uh, DMing, yes. I've DM quite a few one shots either for friends and mm. family. So that's kind of been my niche. I've never done a campaign. And one of the things I've noticed is they tend to be quite uncomfortable with role play, yeah, with voicing out what their character says. And I'm also kind of the same way when I'm a DM. I don't really always like role playing every single character they encounter. And so there's actually a way around it is just to go, okay, well you encounter this person. And they tell you this. Yeah. What What do you respond to that? And then your players can go, well, I'd like to ask about this. And then you go, well, and they tell you this piece of information. And yeah. then you can kind of have that interaction of, of role-playing without, you know, making voices and all. And maybe for new time DMs and new players, that's more comfortable. And eventually you can maybe tease out the rest. Yeah. It's a fantastic a... thing to bring up in like the session zero when when you're setting out your boundaries and you know the yeah. expectations and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. I, I like that as well. Yeah, it's it definitely you know doesn't put the pressure on you because so many people I know sort of have that that feeling of pressure to suddenly be like, oh no, I need to voice this. But again, you're right; it's not needed. Uh, and if you don't actually don't to... have to role play to play D&D. You can just roll some dice yeah. and, <laughs> and have just... fun. Yeah. yeah. With that kind of mind splurge in mind, yeah, I really hope that. If you've been thinking about games mastering or you know giving that position uh, a try you know what i've said is kind of giving you the encouragement to to give it a go because you never know you might find that it's your new calling it'd be a shame if you if you pass it up because you weren't sure so yeah it up. it's fun bring some coffee and some red bull you'll need yes. it if you're a dm <laughs> it's uh, high energy to the other side of the screen now so we're, we're going into the players round which is basically what it's like as a player so obviously we now heard what it can be like to be a dm we're now going to hear what it's like to be a player and i think one thing we're going to bring up is when you're designing characters there's always this desire to make like the best possible character you can make but i think sometimes in that we get bit muddled up in what we're trying to create so i think what we want, really want to discuss is how do you make a compelling character you know what makes a character compelling compelling so so makes it interesting very, that's a very good question especially for new players yeah yes. because because, because i've observed like a, a big difference in how i used to make characters and how i now make them 
it's completely completely different exactly and i think the same with me as well you you want to make a character that you're DM can get their hooks into, or, you know, if, if you want to make a character where the DM sort of ignores you, that's that's fine. Like, I've, I've had players like that who, you know, they don't really want a story. So, you know, you make sort of a quite, a, a, not a basic character, but a character that fits in the things. But I've had players who really want to shine and it's trying to help them create those those characters that are compelling, give them those little nuggets and things. So, you know, I'm just going to go to each of us and then back to me, Anton, this time. What, what for you, Anton, is... You know, how would you describe a compelling character? My first few characters in D&D were not very good. <laughs> right, I'll, I'll start with that. They were just one-dimensional, tropish, both in terms of role-playing potential and also in, in terms of how they were created stat-wise and build-wise. Just not interesting, could do better. And what I found makes a good character is a character that has a duality. So they have different facets to their personality, so that they're not one-dimensional. Let's take the recent example of, of Magnus, who I was playing in the in the Cormier campaign. And Magnus is a soldier, but he's also got a bit of cleric in him. So there's there's faith. He's learned, and the duality of this character is he's moving from call it the army, the the, the armed forces of Cormier, into an adventuring group. So he's gone from sort of a lawful environment to a completely chaotic one. <laughs> and in that process, he's had to change his perception of, of things, of, of what he knew. And he's had to kind of learn about empathy, right? And, and become more empathetic. He can't just treat people like soldiers, right? He has to learn about them and discover their weaknesses. And that's the duality. There's a, the, the personality changes over time from, from one dimension to another. And that's something I, I find most good characters have. I don't know if you agree with me, Dan or Carl, on that. No, 100%. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. Interesting characters develop. Mm. Having a character that is not anchored to a specific thing. Rope. Yeah, yeah. It gives you, as a player, if nothing else, that kind of freedom to, to move them about and have them tackle problems from different perspectives within themselves because as you say for magnus like is he going to look at a problem as an ex-soldier or as a cleric or as an adventurer's gilder the, the potential growth in a character is really what drives them so mm. you can go and, and say yeah i've got a character and they're a mercenary veteran and they're grizzled and unhappy and hate everything okay where's where's that character going to go from there yeah you know what what is what is their redeeming quality? What is their weakness? That's where you want to go. You, you definitely want some DM bait for, for anything that makes a compelling <laughs> character. Like you've got to have, as I said, you've got to have that nugget for the DM to latch onto. It's not just things about that. It's about creating something for your character to, to, to grow and develop, as you sort of said. So, you know, every character I have, I try to, I, I say I try and avoid sort of tragic backstories. Catcher not being the good example of that, I think I, I, I deliberately gave her one, but most of my characters don't have too tragic a past. They're actually quite normal, but they've got something to help them grow. Like my first ever character group, who's just a lovable idiot, had strong family ties and it was his family that helped him grow as a character. And it was the family that gave the, the bait to Dan to, to latch onto and help him grow from a lovable idiot to eventually war leader of his own orcish tribe. And it was that develop of someone who 
introduced himself by cutting a table in half to someone sitting on the back of a war mammoth, a completely different character. And to me, even when people bring me their character designs, it, it's those things I look for, is how I can take this character from how they start and turn them into something heroic because that's what you're trying to be you're trying to be a hero and you've got to have those hero moments and for me a compelling character is one that evolves like uh, you know i I will look at those and and i'd love to play those as well so i and at the moment even in in the explorers of elsewhere catcher is slowly evolving and i'm looking forward to seeing how she evolves because that's the things I, i look for when i design my characters to grow yeah, and so it's not easy to do. Like I, I don't know how you find that that secret recipe. You have to play around with the the backstory, the characters, and the, and the way you you improv them. I wouldn't be able to give you write down a recipe for finding no. a compelling character. Which it doesn't. Is... I know we're sort of saying this whole thing is about finding compelling characters, but you really it does. The recipe doesn't exist because mm, no. it's objective. I mean, I've got a. Like I've got an, a point that I think really it. helps. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Give us the recipe, Dan. Compelling characters are nearly always, in my opinion, flawed. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we were to compare, for example, Superman to Batman, mm-hmm. one of those superheroes arguably is intensely more interesting than the other (laughs) when you're invested in a player so much in a character so much sorry you want to see your character succeed and you want them to be their best selves a lot of the time but sometimes that success has to be for a personal demon that your character has with them already but when you say flawed, I would just like professor because the character can be flawed by just being a jackass, right? That's not what we're saying. I think what you, what we're saying is their flaw is inherently tied to their qualities. Like it's yes. kind of like because they're good at this, they're really not good at this, yeah. and that's kind of that dichotomy where where if your character is created in such a way where sometimes there are going to be kind of questions or situations they find themselves facing and they just don't have a good response to it for whatever reason that makes it an interesting choice and like your character's decision in that moment then becomes significantly more interesting when you look at say the original star wars trilogy a lot of people will point at Han Solo as being the most kind of invoke lovable, memorable mm-hmm. character. Like more so than I suppose Luke, because Luke's just kind of the poster boy and a lot of the stuff that Luke does is works. Yeah, he, he is a bit of a wallpaper character. Right. Compared to yeah. a flawed character like Han. Like, you know, Han and, and doesn't even want to be there at the start. Actually, in RPG, that's a pretty bad trope to lean on. I don't want to <laughs> be here. It's like, mm, avoid that. But Han Solo becomes this compelling character. Han Solo got a spin-off movie because there was all of this um, development potential that he went through. Like he went through his own journey, and that was just very interesting to watch. And he and he's not he's probably the worst character out of the group, right? In terms of values and qualities. Yeah, hundred percent. Right? He, he's like mm, he's. The I'd worst. argue that one. I'd argue that one because he he. Who's the worst? He cares more than he lets on. 
And I think that's the thing okay. that they... Oh, we're going to get so many angry people at me talking about Solo there. Um, <laughs> but Han Solo does care. And it's very clear in the second one because he puts himself in danger almost the moment he finds out Luke's in trouble. The moment yeah. Luke doesn't return back, he searches the whole base for him. And, and, and then here he... we go. That's that's the dichotomy again. It's like he cares, also a bit of a jackass, but pretends he doesn't. And that's, yeah, it, again, this is where, where that, that yeah, comes in. I think... As, as Dan's saying, flaws are important for characters. Like, if we go back to the Star Wars analogy, every character you can think of has has a flaw in some regard. Luke is naive. Uh, Obi-Wan is, uh, you know, so, so, I don't know how to really sort of say dead. it. He's not, he, he's with dead. That, he, not in the first one, he's not. He's towards the <laughs> well, end. He but, is by the end of it. You know, Spoilers. Han, Solo, <laughs> Han Solo has his pride. You know, Leia has her drive, which is a positive and it's a negative because obviously it leads her into bad situations. You know, and and even Tarkin has his. Uh, what about George? Wrong films, but you know, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm not going to get into that discussion because this isn't a Star Wars podcast; it's a D and yeah. D podcast. Uh, we're in the wrong podcast. Every character I've created does have a flaw of some description. Group was, you know, naive. Catcher is secretive, distrusting because of her her upbringing. You just said it. It's because of yeah. Distrusting because of, mm-hmm. and Magnus lacks empathy because of kind of his yeah. his training as a in, in in the armed forces and 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 those kind of things. The, the because of is an important bit because better or worse, I've seen a lot of characters that are un, unashamed edge lords. Yeah, uh, and like yeah. there there are certain mediums. Like I'm gonna put my neck out a little bit here and say. In a lot of anime, for example, like Eastern animation, you'll have a lot of edgy, dark, brooding, mysterious characters, and they're cool. Like a lot of them are cool. I won't, I won't take that away from them. But a lot of the time, they're also not a main character that you're really invested in. As a player, I just don't think we should be building characters that are inherently side characters if that makes sense so like you need the because of you can't just have and it has to be a positive quality there like this because of yeah slightly off topic but i'm going to say if you're creating a character for the first time i also have a recommendation is to base the character on a slightly different version of you and i'm not sure everyone does this but i would say like take take something that you relate to, uh, like an experience you've had, whether when you were younger, when you were older, or somebody you know what their path was, and and then you'll have a character that's similar to you but different in some ways, and that's a really good reference for starting a character because mm-hmm. you kind of have know what they've gone through and know how they think, and and so quite a few of my characters vastly different. Like Magnus and Damien, my uh, barbarian rogue, they're they're similar to me, but in different ways. And so you can actually have very different characters, but still have them relate to you. I don't know if Dan and Cole, you you build characters the same way, or have had characters that are the same. Personally, no. I try not to make characters like me. I always try to build a character that is very much unlike me because I enjoy. <laughs> I, I come to D&D not to be me. I come to D&D to be... And not in a bad way. I come to D&D to, to play as characters. So I always like to yeah. create characters that are much larger than life than myself or 
you know, are very much unlike me. I'm, I'm not a, a, you know, you know, half orc barbarian with the the IQ of of a, of a rock. You know, not a red headed singer actor. Or no, female, but like but... In, in terms of the the back, you know, the no, backstory I... or how they interact with people, is there nothing that you would no, pinpoint? No, I, I pers personally, and it's only the personal thing. I know other people who do this, but personally, no, I don't use any. Not that I say I don't have any experiences with this thing, but I don't want to use stuff from my my real life in in these sort of situations personally because for me i'm creating a whole new persona and character and things and i want to create their life from the choices and the backgrounds i create which kind of was i was going to sort of mention before we came back onto this is when it actually comes to these sort of compelling sort of moments you don't need to have these straight away i think this, this is mm. the point i was going to you don't need these straight away uh, for, for for group these things came later so my other characters they were there from the start but then that was because you know the dm wanted those things you don't have to have these compelling moments you can think about them and have them build up and or if, if you want you can let your work with your dm to create those moments because i we could yeah. easily get wrapped in like all the different ways we make compelling things but to be honest for each person it is different like as we've just demonstrated you know use mm -hmm. real life experiences i i, I don't I say I say that, but Balthazar is not based on me at all. Really? I I, I could have sworn you were sort of like a, a man in the metal suit, but I, you know, I do wear glasses. Maybe maybe <laughs> that might be it, but like his whole personality and character-wise, yeah. very different, and and that's probably closer to what you you do, I think. And yeah. it, it's also very interesting to have that character, but I don't think I would have started with that very well. It's because I've had those other characters that yeah. I'm able to play Balthazar. I think. Well, before we sort of leave it, let's just quickly sort of say to, to Dan so he can sort of say his piece. How you know? Do you use real life experiences or do you do you just make it up? <laughs> I am a hundred percent guilty. Nearly every one of my characters is based off some ephemeral personality trait that I have. You know, the the grumpiness of Algrim, mm. uh, the dwarf librarian. You know, the charisma showmanship of Meridius. Uh, like the gunslinger, fire slinger, whatever the the raw chaotic whimsy of Azorius, you know. I, I I to be fair, I do base them off those just because that means I've got this inbuilt library of things I can just do uh, at the drop of a hat. One thing I just really want to quickly say: you mentioned kind of working with your DM to kind of build these compelling aspects. I think it's also really really important to work with the DM especially at the start of the session, well, I know a lot of players will go, I'm about to play in a new campaign, and I'm going to play this character that I've had racked up and ready for ages. But like, you then potentially run the risk of your character not really having anything to do with the campaign. You know, we're looking at doing a Wild Beyond the Witchlight campaign, uh, separately to the channel. There are so many interesting and intriguing plot hooks that you can weave into your character that you can build a character around which then dumps like intrinsically ties your character in with the story and just by doing that suddenly your character becomes more interesting and compelling because they matter at that point mm -hmm. do you speak with your dm to tie your character to the yeah. campaign just to sort of wrap up i said it everyone is different every character is different obviously this is just sort of our our opinions but hopefully this helps you design a character with at least some sort of compelling compelling aspect but let's let's move on so the final segment we've got today is what we're calling the happy hour where we basically we discuss any other business i wanted to bring up a 
favorite DMing tool of mine, and, and also a favorite thing that happens when I'm a player, and that is the rule of call. For the uninitiated, the rule of call is basically as uh, a DM, your player has done something, or, or at least described something that is so sort of outside of the rules, but it's just so awesome that you kind of just want to let it happen. And mm -hmm. basically what I want to sort of bring up is our experiences with the rule of call, both as sort of players and DMs, and times mainly as a DM when some players done something where we've been like, this has to happen. I can't, I can't not let it happen. And as players, times when we have expected the rule of call, but kind of been disappointed because your DM is like, yeah, that was cool, but mm, nah, it's too much. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss these these different options and just basically figure out our, our favorite rule of call moments. Dan, what do you have? <laughs> In terms of what like the rule of call is, like, you, you kind of nailed it on the head. There's the way I try to rule it, like whether I should be adopting the rule of call at any given point or not, is if I were watching what was happening in a movie mm. and we're about to have a, like, Bruce Willis and Die Hard leaping out the fourth story window of an exploding building moment, is that happening right now? If so, I'm using the rule of call. Or, like, basically, the rules are going out the window and you're just, it's just gonna happen. Right? It's like, like a cutscene. Like, basically, yeah. Have we triggered a cutscene? <laughs> okay. Yeah, the way I implement it a lot of the time is just by dismissing the rules and just saying, you know what, that sounds incredible. Let's run with it. Uh, if we're playing 5th edition D&D, you'll probably get inspiration for it as well. Because, like, if it's the sort of thing where all the other players have gone, yeah, then we're going to rule or call it, right? Because I'm not going to be the one to go, I'll roll a DC 18 check for that. Like, no, just let it happen. It, it's, a it's a fun story, right? You can do that to really make your characters feel amazing. Uh, a really kind of celebratory moment. One of my more favorite rule of call moments, which... <laughs> it was kind of an inversion because I used it for one of my NPCs uh, during our fourth egg campaign. The party were in this floating Eladrin sky city, uh, hovering over the Feywild. They were specifically going through like a school uh, that had been corrupted <laughs> by necromancers and the like. They were collecting keys to unlock a the doors oh, to the I Kronos vaults, which were uh, this massive kind of interdimensional library. Uh, because they needed some information on the big bad. As they were ascending this huge, like, unfathomably huge golden staircase uh, up to the Kronos vaults, um, said big bad turned up. Yep. And yeah, at this point, because we were playing in person and, like, we used to draw the maps out on a mat, right? Handed the pens out to the players. I, I had the stairs drawn out and I handed the, the pens out to the players and I explained to them that these purple lightning bolts were streaking from the sky and striking at the stairs. So I, I, I said to the players, feel free, just like doodle cracks and chunks of the stairs getting blown out. And the players were like, yeah, yeah, sure. And they just started doodling away and their mm -hmm. models were on the stairs and they were going up, you know, they were taking turns and kind of running up because this big bab was after them. And then they got to the top and they realized the doors were locked and everyone's taking turns. And then they noticed that as the players were arguing amongst themselves, the big bad was just moving out of sequence every so often. Just a few more squares. When the players realized, oh, 
oh, <laughs> this big man isn't obeying the laws of the turn <laughs> sequence. Suddenly, everything just became frenetic. And that was one of the more, I think it was one of the more memorable confrontations with a big bad. Separately, again, when we were playing Shadowrun, in terms of a setting, that's pretty daft. And when your Shadowrunners are coming up with all sorts of different explanations and methods and plans, a lot of the time you just have to stop, close your eyes and go, could I imagine this happening in the Matrix? Yes, I could. It works. Yeah, and you, you just you just run with it. And but Shadowrun is very cinematic. I find yes. in its in its aesthetic, in the way it plays, it's very. You have a set piece, and then you yes. you light the fuse, and it just goes. I think it's almost like you know the the whole joke that if something's got a one in a million chance of happening, it's got a hundred percent chance of working. <laughs> and like it's those situations that you rule or call it. So. It Actually makes me think about a really cool moment for one of my campaigns. Uh, it was a Star Wars Edge of the Empire campaign, and the players had got themselves involved in a uh, street race, but of course on Cloud City, so there are no roads on said street races. So they were doing it in those flying little podcasts, mm -hmm. and the race had also been equipped because you know it was a criminal underworld thing with guns. So. Two of the players were out, yeah. out in the front, they were sort of winning, and unfortunately a couple of bad rolls meant their ship got taken out of the race and was starting to plummet down into the cloud line. But the player then turned around and was like, Star Wars setting, right? Oh, yeah, of course it is. Just like, well, I pray to the living force, and then whacking on the control panel, and then suddenly just all the lights come back on. And it, at that point it was like, I don't need you to roll to repair, I'm going to give you back this many hit points for that. And the ship comes popping up through the clouds and, and rejoins the race. I think they eventually managed to win it again with some 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 clever maneuvering. But it was one of those moments like you should be out of the race, you should have lost. But just the way they sort of described the falling, the bashing, it was just like, yeah, tell with it, you're back in the race. I, I don't care. It's just because that's just so cool to imagine. On the on the rule of cool, I'm, I think I might have a slightly controversial opinion. I don't like when the rule of cool interferes with mechanics. So when it's when mm. it's cinematic, I'm all for it. When it's just yeah. like a little some spice, and you fly through the air, or you you punch this guy and he falls over the table, and he like all for it. When you use a rule of cool to impact mechanics, for me, I feel like it, it creates a bit of imbalance. It's like all right, how many rules of cools did you have versus I had versus they had, and I mm. I feel like the rules are. They're fair, they're even, we keep them fair and even for everyone. So if you start using, I don't know that we do in, in our campaign, but if you use the rule of cool to impact mechanics, I don't like it. That's my personal opinion. I don't know when, what you guys feel about it. Like, because the term mechanics obviously encompasses such a, a wide variety, array of things. What what specifically are we talking? Somebody picks up a weapon and they just automatically crit or destroy something or... Uh, I don't know. It's just something that would feel unbalanced. I, I wouldn't be a, a big fan of. If the whole group gets it, I, I'm fine. But if somebody uses the rule of cool, but somehow like keeps using that thing as like a way of kind of not using the rules. For for me, it does have to be of a given give and take. You know, when it comes to the rule of cool, if there's an expectation for it, yes, that can get a bit dangerous. But if it's something that happens periodically okay granted for a little bit afterwards your players are probably going to keep trying to grasp for that until they realize they they're not going to get it anymore and then obviously that's when the next one is going to be important again you're they get an instant crit 
or, or here's an, exa an example in a in a combat say somebody wants to do too many things like they're like i want to open the door touch a magic item and decapitate this guy and do this thing me, that, and, that's if the not... and if the dm goes yeah you can do it for me but that's it wasn't, not it wasn't cool, really though. cinematic it was just yeah. like the play art wanted something special wanted to do all these things it needs to be something truly balls to the wall is the probably the best way of uh, for me for putting it like doing something that kind of does break the mechanics but in such a way that you kind of want to see it happen so oh. if it's just like oh you insta shot the bad guy that's not a good reason for any, uh, a ruler call you know if it's maybe the bad guy has just brought one of your players down to zero hp and actually you've been kind of hinting at the fact maybe the fact your character's in a relationship and suddenly your character runs up in that moment of panic and if, if they describe that role play moment well of this person suddenly possibly seeing the person they fall in love with die maybe i might let them get that that crit in for the next shot no matter what they roll because they're sort of fitting in with their characters you know mechanics and stuff and if they've explained yeah. it or and described and is, it in such a way yeah then... and that's why i say it has to be cinematic and not mechanic hmm. Yeah. Like if somebody's, yeah. Like if somebody's trying to do too many things, or yeah, that doesn't using... doesn't fall into the roller call for me. For for me, the roller call is cinematic. It's something, as Dan said, it's a cutscene. I feel like it, it can be subject to interpretation because, like, one player might be like, "No, no, but I want to attack these three guys, and it'll be super cool because I'll decapitate them." And then you go, "Well, you have two attacks." That's... Like I, as a DM, I wouldn't be like, "Yeah, you get a third attack." Again, I, it's that not cool enough. No, that that again wouldn't fall into the rule of call for me. Mm. Dan, yeah. you, you look like you want to say something. Yeah, I was just I was just trying to think of the difference between it because between difference between one person saying, "I want to run into the room with three hundred people and, and stab all of them and like, be a badass," uh, versus I want to leap from the burning train onto the back of the dragon as it swoops under the bridge. And it's that moment, it's mm. that one where the player kind of goes, I want to do something that realistically I'm not going to roll high enough to do. <laughs> yeah. But I want to do it anyway. Yeah. That, yeah, in my mind, that gets rewarded with, yeah. okay, you leap. Uh, I might, I probably, you know, I might still ask for a roll and please don't roll a one. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that you roll a call. You just yeah, yeah, hundred percent that happens. Yeah, exactly. where where mechanically they wouldn't be able to make the jump, but because because it's yeah crazy, they they can they get a shot at. It could potentially be abused by a player as well. It's kind of the thing I'm worried about. Hundred percent would be something like um, if you've got a a spell and you've got a bonus action spell, right? Normally, if you have a bonus action spell of first level or higher, your action cannot be a spell. So I would be wary of a DM that would allow that and say, oh, yeah, rule cool. You can cast a spiritual weapon and cure wounds. Like, for me, that's just not cool. Yeah. All right, it, maybe it is. This this is what I, I kind of noticed, in a sense. As you said, you, you're not a big fan of, like, the rule of cool. But that's what I sort of noticed between sort of, like... Our sort of descriptions sort of when, when me and dan talk about it we're talking about these just big over-the-top moments but you really like the for you it's it's the mechanical sort of side of it you don't want to break the mechanic side like yeah. which again isn't isn't how i see the roller core anyway if, if someone's trying to deliberately break the way the game works by trying to argue rule of call that's not what i'd use it for i think we're on the same page i'm just mm. arguing rule of cool should be like a high yeah. stakes cinematic thing yeah and not like a casual thing that 
for yeah. like minor actions that might be cool, but realistically, I find degrades the hmm. I mean, degrades the rules of the game. At the same time, it can be quite disheartening for a player who comes up with a uh, unusual, out of the box solution to a problem that the DM hadn't considered, only to find that alternative solution bludgeoned to death with mechanics. Uh, stealth, for example. In in 5th edition D&D, stealth is a, let's be honest, it's a bit of a murky area uh, in <laughs> yeah. terms of like how you truly implement it. So, yeah, like sometimes in those, yeah, if, if it's a case where the DMs assumed, oh, well, clearly you're going to kick the front door down and you're just going to go charging through, chopping everything up. But then one of the players turns around and goes and says well actually if we do this 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 and this and we could sneak in through the side and we could you know go do this and and like if that ends up being a more interesting and compelling story then maybe as the dm or the gm i wouldn't have every single guard be testing for perception checks versus your stealth check. yeah it's you know that that is me using rule of claw to just smother mechanics well you shouldn't be trying to use rule of call as a mechanic for your character's success if that makes sense yeah you shouldn't be yeah i think carl you touched on this earlier you shouldn't be doing things with the expressing tension of forcing the game's master to give you a rule yeah of call by yeah because I... if you're trying to get it you're just turning that into a mechanic and that's not the spirit of rule of call Exactly. I mean, I've, I know I've I've done that to a DM before. I've had that expectation that I, I was so sure that my description would be, you know, of how things would go with with or him so that he'd turn around and be like, you know what? Hell yeah, let's let's do it. <laughs> he was so resistant to the idea that I I got caught up in obviously the, the mechanics then side because obviously he's like no, no you need to roll this and i was like yeah but, but you know come on i was like no no roll this <laughs> and in my head i had this big action scene in mind when suddenly that action scene ends up being an absolute damn squib because suddenly it's like yeah i'm gonna do this nope okay i failed the roll uh-oh you know yeah. and at that point i was challenged because my expectations were a lot higher than the, the, the reality. And in the end, the, the scene turned out fantastic, either, either which way. It didn't turn out how I wanted it to because I mm. I had that rule of call expectation and I came across a brick wall because I was assuming that it would happen. And it, it set a good bar because now I don't overplan the, the, the character scenes because, again, I know that my DM doesn't want the rule of cool moments he wants to tell the, the, the story and he, he wants the mechanics because it challenges us in the mechanics but uh, yeah i've definitely been that person who's been like give me rule of cool and then they're like what what do you mean no i mean <laughs> didn't i just describe that scene amazingly for you yeah it was a great great explanation that's not how it goes though so <laughs> roll acrobatics <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah i think that's a good point i think it it depends on each group it depends on each person. Mm. As I said, I think our group, especially the campaign, we tend to play by the rules. Mm. But if you're playing a rules light campaign, then you can rule a cool all the way, <laughs> just all the time, all the way, and have a great time. So 
So it, that, that's it just a, depends on your play style, I guess. Good question, Dan. Has because uh, I honestly can't think of one right now. Has there actually been any roller cool moments in the Cormier campaign? Has has anyone done something where you've sat there and gone? Because I honestly can't think of one. I, I don't think we've had one, especially not on the YouTube side of things yet. Can you think of any roller cool moments in in in? Cormier's I think it's a bit more s subtle. I think it's it's. Dan letting us get away with things we normally shouldn't, maybe. Yeah, I, think that, I can't think of like any moments. Like, like for that. the benefit of the story, like I can th I think of a few suggestions, maybe, where or, I mean, or sure, some there, there, there was definitely one on moment. The there was definitely one moment I just thought about it was when I, yeah. I cast the cutting words on the Beast of Malar, which yes. for a save, which I shouldn't have done. I, I you know did it in in error but then it carried on it's only after the session you let me know it's like actually you shouldn't have done that but it was just it really cool ended the fight in a what do you mean way. you should what well, do you mean you cutting words because i use cutting words on a save which you're not allowed to do you can only do cutting words on skill checks and ability checks oh, I, right, okay. I did it on a save by by in error but because it worked out well with the the, the fight in the sense that catcher getting into the mind of the beast and figure out who it was yeah. dan let it go ahead so yes okay perfect example i guess yeah but yeah, is there any other moments, moments of, of if i let this slide if i if i implement ruler call will that make the, will that improve the story mm. and in that moment i thought to myself i think it does yeah yeah and it did it did it really did and so what was your example yeah no no i'm just because i tend to be I, I like my i like my rules like i'm a <laughs> I tend to be oh. a bit of a rules lawyer. Really? Uh, yeah, no, I do. And uh, and so I have to be conscious sometimes to like let some things like slide or like talk about it after. Mm -hmm. And that's that's also one of the things is letting people have their moment, even if it doesn't respect the rules fully. That, that might be if they can cast two spells, a, a bonus and an action, and they can they can have three attacks or well, i don't know but there might be moments like that where maybe if it's cinematic you let it go i mean i suppose mm -hmm. sometimes it doesn't even have to be in inverted commas as structured as that i mean this is very widely popularized by for example critical role um the words how do you want to do this mm. realistically nothing mechanically is changing nothing uh, like yeah, it's all it's all cinematic. Like as as a as a DM, I'm looking at it and going, okay, you've dropped the baddie to zero hit points. But then just handing the reins to the player and saying, you be the art director, like you be the cinematographer right now. Go, like you be the stunt coordinator. That that's a rule of cool, um, because it's it's mm. something that just makes the player players feel awesome. I'll tell you one, one area where I, I think I would like to see more rule of cool mm -hmm. is probably going to be with cantrips and specifically the non damaging ones. Prestigitation, Prestigitation, so, gust, gust of Wind, Thaumaturgy. Like, if you have um, Druidcraft and you want to make a whole tree, okay, do it. You know, that's like normally you're only supposed to like make a plant. If for some reason in the story you want to make a tree, make a tree with it you know or gust of wind if you want to turn a windmill with it or you know if it's if it's especially if it's an rp moment like that cantrip can just become way more way more powerful because you 
should have that power with you, even though you might not have the spell, the spell slot, or mm -hmm. yeah. ninth level but, cantrip. <laughs> yeah, and maybe maybe you ask your player to build to to waste a a spell slot, saying, okay, you want to have that effect, but okay, burn a spell slot, and you can pump up that cantrip. Sure. Yeah. I think that that's yeah, that's a cool rule of cool moment that that, yeah. that could maybe maybe be used. In, so in summary, the rule of cool is. Hate it. Really hate it. <laughs> it's a cutscene. At the best, describe it. You know, it can be anything for anyone. Like, as, as I said, we've got three different ideas of what uh, of the rule of cool is. I mean, two that kind of think kind of match slightly, one that maybe doesn't. But the idea is. No, I'm, just... I'm there with you. I think we, we all agree. <laughs> but it's just basically something that makes the player's life. More exciting. More exciting and gives them that heroic moment, I think. And it, which comes back to something we mentioned in one of the previous segments when you design a compelling character is because you want to end up being heroic. And I think with the, the, the rule of cool, it's that it gives you that hero's moment. And I think that's why as a DM, I particularly love it because it, and you know, as a DM celebrating your players victories. Yeah, being exactly. ally. I just like being a Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that bell. That was for last orders. So uh, we'll be closing the tavern soon. Thank you for listening and, and sticking with us. And we look forward to do this uh, month in, month out, and have these conversations about D and D. Yeah, uh, should have should be a good time. Yeah, hopefully so. I mean, I Looking definitely enjoyed enjoyed this one, and I look forward to doing more in future. Uh, if you want uh, more information about the tavern between dimension, you can follow us on our socials. Uh, you can follow us at Tavern Between. Uh, we'll put a link down below for you to have a look at, but that's at Tavern Between, and you can find that on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, yeah, so you can find me at DM, DMT uh, over on Instagram, and in terms of Twitter, you can also find me at DM Dan T. That'll also be down below. I don't do the internet, so uh, <laughs> I'll just have to message Dan and get the message to him. And if you want to follow me personally, I'm at Group Stormbear. That's group with two O's. G-R-O-O-P Stormbear. All one word. And that's again Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so the tavern is now closing. Please respect our neighbours as you leave. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Beware of the trolls. <laughs> they have Bye -bye. been recently. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thank you. See you later. Yeah.